For a very long time, the core animating drive of human life was pretty much, we could say, a mystery. Freud, for example, believed that the core human drive was discharging a libidinal energy that built up along with, at times, aggressive energies. The Western philosophers Schopenhauer and Nietzsche believed that we were animated by this blind will to survive at all costs, this kind of animating feature that simply looked to amass control, power, goods simply for the purpose of survival. A very dark view that deep down inside all we care about is ourselves. And certainly at core points of the Buddha's Dharma, he or she talks about the dismay of looking at the human condition and observing the behaviors of others and the conclusions that the Buddha arrived at. Perhaps no more beautifully put than in a sutta called the Atadanda, which is a masterpiece of both poetry and psychology. In it, we hear the Buddha proclaim, everywhere I looked in the world, all I saw were people quarreling and in dismay. People living like floundering fish in ever-dwindling puddles, competing with one another for limited amounts of food, and a great fear arose as me as I looked at others. The world was utterly without purpose. There was nothing but competition and discontent. You don't get more cynical and nihilistic than that view. And if that's all the Buddha proposed, then the Buddha would be amongst the most Nietzschean, nihilistic philosophers and psychologists that the world produced. And yet, that's not all the Buddha saw. He also saw a twin impulse, another impulse, that was far, far healthier and led ultimately to the entire spiritual path. The Buddha noted the second circuit was a social brain that compels us to connect with each other for love and security and kindness. And he called this mita, Kalyana mita, loving, secure, safe friends, companionship, support. In the Sambodhi Sutta, he said, there is friendship and there is companionship and it is the prerequisite for the development of any peace in life. And he said that in the Bhikkhuvaga Sutta in the Dhammapada, the first thing for any of us who are discerning to seek is admirable, safe friendship. In the Upada Sutta, which is a famous sutta where the Buddha, um, is, Ananda asked the Buddha, is it true that wise friendship is half of the path? And the Buddha quickly corrects Ananda and says, no. 
It's the entirety of the past. So, yes, we have this excruciatingly dark view that the samsaric energy that propels us from one unsatisfactory state in our life where we're craving power and financial security and short-term pleasures as a way to survive at all costs and ultimately leads to emptiness and lack of fulfillment. But then there is also this twin impulse that is as healthy as the first is unhealthy, that leads us to connect, to reach out, to disclose, to be vulnerable. So in this way, the Buddhist path is an answer to nihilism and cynicism based on the observation of a pro-tribal brain, which we now know to be absolutely founded in hard science. The world of social neuroscience is rich and vast from people like Alan Shore and Matthew Lieberman and Gazaniga and on and on and on. And what they found is while there are circuits certainly in the brain that devote themselves to surviving at all costs, there is also in each of us these life-giving strong impulses from the moment we are born to be seen in the eye of the other. As much as the infant baby wants to be held and fed and given warmth, even as strong as those impulses are, as strong is the need to make eye contact and to be held in a sustaining, loving glance. Yesterday, Heather was mentioning the great um, uh, Peter Levine, who wrote a seminal book called Waking the Tiger, which is a masterpiece in somatic experiencing. He's not actually alone. My hero in that field is a woman named Pat Ogden. And Pat Ogden is probably one of the great minds of our lifetime, along with Leslie Greenberg, Diana Fosha. They, so many of them are women who have come to clear insights as to what drives the human personality. Pat Ogden has noted that all of our personalities and characteristics start as strategies to survive our childhoods. And to the degree that our childhoods are safe and loving and that we get attention that's sustained without having to perform and sing and dance and uh, rely on strategies such as narcissistic, look at me, look how well I'm doing, look at all I'm achieving. If you haven't guessed, our president is probably the prime example of what happens in adult life if childhood is uh, made safe by the child needing to perform all the time to make, to get attention. Other strategies, some children will be sick all the time or emotionally over-exaggerated. Some children to survive will turn into caregivers. Some children to survive will disappear, withdraw into uh, shells contracted so that the attention they get is limited but safe. The brain, with all of its regions, is a remarkable 
storage facility of impulses and compulsions and strategies that are deeply woven to simply help us get our needs met with other people in the safest way possible. To the degree that early experience was loving is to the degree that our, I'll say, our hard-wired tendencies will adapt well. But the degree that our childhoods contained rejection, chronic shaming, with uh, unreliable love and care, where we were made to feel wrong due to our completely natural impulses to sing, dance, bumble about, be angry, express emotion. To the degree that there was shaming, rejection, uh, to the degree that there was a withholding of the caring, attentive glance that is the core drive of attachment is the degree that we will abandon parts of ourselves and erect entirely different strategies to maintain connection. We will do anything to maintain caregiving, no matter what form it takes in our childhood. So why is it if we develop these different impulses to survive, and if you look at your life from any different uh, over the course of uh, different time periods, you'll see that you are not a single ongoing entity, that your actions, impulses, thoughts, behaviors, the whole me that Heather was talking about that's comprised of psychosomatic and reactive tendencies, that me is actually a nice title that we give that contains within it a vast array of different inclinations and behaviors. Sometimes with my friends, I'm easygoing. Most of the time I am, frankly, but I don't talk like I'm talking to you when I'm with my friends. It's in the same overly loud, booming, neurotic, Jewish Upper West Side voice, but I don't give them lectures on <laughs> the need for true sustaining friendships, and I'm not Mr. Know-it-all. When I'm in a Buddhist center, I'm different than the person I am in the one-on-one, -on -one, where I'm far more just sitting back, listening, encouraging others to feel safe. I'm not just unspooling this unending barrage of verbiage at you. So there's different me's, and of course the, the person you're hearing right now is remarkably different from the person my sister knows, or the person that Kathy knows when we're hanging out, where I'm, I'm unloading my neurosis and my fears and anxieties as much as I'm talking about high aspirational goals and whatever. So why is it, given that we have all these different personality parts, what the Buddha called chetasikas, sub-personalities, and anasayas, different unconscious latent drives and tendencies. Why is it that it seems like we have a consistent self? Well, in the 1960s, a great neuroscientist, Michael Gazzaniga, noted that one part of our brain, the left hemisphere, has a very special region comprised of little parts like Broca and Wernicke's, which creates an unending stream of language that turns our life into a narrative story and covers up 
how different our sub-personalities are from one another. So I'd like today to launch you a little bit on an investigation into the different parts of yourself, because one of the great things we can do when we get away from our daily lives, the routines, the rituals, the distractions, the, the obligations, the scheduling, is that we can really begin to connect with some of the different parts of ourselves, give them love, and begin the process of balancing, integrating, and learning ourselves to be the conductor of our orchestra rather than some, rather than have the, there be chaos where certain parts dominate at the expense of other parts. These ideas are very big throughout all of contemporary psychology. It started not just with Jung's shadow self where parts of ourselves get shoved into the background that hold all of the wounds and the disappointments and Alice Miller's inner child that holds all of our pains. The basic idea is that almost all of human personality is not just the attempt to maintain getting approval and a secure place in the world with other people, but is also to bury the emotional wounds of those times when we were abandoned and rejected and make sure it never, ever, ever happens again. We all carry in us a buried pool of poison and pain containing all the times from childhood onward where we simply wanted to get love and security and nurturing and kindness and instead we were greeted with rejection, with ridicule from peers, with impatience from teachers, with misunderstanding from family members, those crucial times where we just wanted to be seen when we felt overwhelmed, lonely, confused, and we were met with stressed, overworked, uh, tired, uh, emotionally unavailable adults. And none of those experiences are forgotten. They're not forgotten. They don't go away. What we know from the work of Alan Shore is that there is a repository in the right hemisphere called the orbital frontal where all of the wounds throughout life that we amass are stored as rich, unfortunately extremely painful uh, deposits of pain, and we will do anything to protect ourselves from re-experiencing those feelings of abandonment and rejection. So one very useful strategy of unpacking how we protect ourselves from pain and how we develop these parts in ourselves that animate us throughout life and actually create the strategies to survive and get our needs met in the world is called internal family systems. It's one of my favorite modalities, and I use it a lot in the counseling work that I do. And I think it's actually a wonderful way to begin to relate to ourselves when we're on retreat. The basic gist of it is, and I'm going to simplify it, is that there are three overall kinds of parts in each of us. The 
I'll even go so far as to say there are four. The most prevalent are what's called managers. These are the parts of ourselves that look great to other people, and no one will ever criticize you for your managers. They're the perfectionism, the caregiver, the self-sufficient, self-reliant part that always keeps her head, her chin up, never has any needs, smiles even though she doesn't feel like smiling. The inner critic who's constantly striving to be better and more perfect and attain more and telling us that we're not doing enough. The people pleaser, the part of ourselves that just wants to say and do anything to be popular, loved, appreciated. And none of these parts are bad. All of these parts started very young in life as a way to survive. And when we do the work of connecting with our parts and asking them to unburden themselves of our survival so that other parts can flourish, we have to be ever so kind and compassionate when we talk to these parts and ask them to step aside a little bit so that other parts can see the light. All of these parts are unsustainable. If you're a workaholic and you try to get love and appreciation by saving your company, being the one who's always rescuing and keeping projects going, it might look great to the people you work with, but it will kill you. If you try to get love by always being self-reliant, never having needs, being the one who cares about others, but not having the ability to share your needs, then you will be alone. I have fallen into all of these tendencies myself. Crucially, for much of my life to survive a violent alcoholic family, I learned that being around other men required me to have this incredibly false facade of taciturnic, trying to act like Lou Reed at all costs, even though I'm the furthest thing from Lou Reed. There's not a cool molecule in my body, but uh, for years I tried to enact that punk rock, mohawked, cool facade to survive in a world of other men that I believe unless I was cool, they would taunt, explode, and unleash violence. So that was one of my managers. When our managers fail, those are the parts of us that look good to other people, and those are, almost all of our managers are the things that lead to, the, to our occupations in life. I was talking with a famous Buddhist teacher. Her initials are DD. <laughs> She's a wonderful, wonderful person. And uh, she told me that she grew up with a father who was a, uh, a mercurial artist who was constantly on drugs. And as a child, to survive and get a safe condition with a mercurial drug addict father. She had to learn to be a, a caretaker par excellence. And so what did she wind up doing in her adult life? She wound up being a talent manager, working with incredibly mercurial drug addict male figures and female figures. The exact same life that was in her childhood she unconsciously was drawn to as her adult life. 
This is not an uncommon story. The fact of the matter is we all excel at surviving eventually our childhoods and then we bring those character strategies into our adult life and it's what picks our jobs, our occupations, our friendships. It can lead to what's called a repetition compulsion where we repeat all of the dramas again and again and again. And that's psychologically how samsara happens, how we repeat over and over again from one lifestyle to another the same suffering. So a second category of uh, chetasikas, parts of ourselves are called firefighters, whereas the managers look really good to other people and those are the strategies of perfectionism and caretaking and uh, people pleasing and uh, all those things that look good, workaholism. The firefighter is the part of ourselves that goes home, locks the door, puts on Netflix and gets out the pint of ice cream and just consumes in a desperate effort to not feel the loneliness of not re being truly seen by other people. A friend who I worked with in counseling, oh, such a lovable guy, he said that in his day-to-day -day life, he called his, his uh, manager Jazz Hands. <laughs> jazz Hands was, he worked as a uh, bartender and waiter in a very big, well-known restaurant where he had to make every customer feel loved and appreciated and cared about. But when he went home, he, he had a second set of characteristics that he, and I never got him to change the name. He always gave them a negative name, and that's really what I don't want. But he called the second parts of himself that he didn't want anybody else to see, the slug, which would essentially retire to the couch, turn on the lowest, as he put it, form of television, invariably the bachelor or the bachelorette or something like that, and imbibe copious amounts of cookies and unsustainable food sources and just ply himself down with sugar because jazz hands, the dance that he put on in his day-to-day -day life, looking good, pleasing people, making other people feel important, was not an authentic presentation of his true feelings, emotional activations. Jazz hands was a performance. And so deep down inside, at the end of work, he felt lonely and empty and unseen. And the only way to keep from re-experiencing and feeling those similar wounds that were activated from childhood of being alone, a young gay man in the depths of the South, ridiculed by his town and his family, the only way not to feel that pain was to bury it under food and distractions. So the longer we compartmentalize that part of ourselves, which we'll call the wounded child, which holds all of our pains, the more we will become desperate to stay stuck in those parts of ourselves that are desperately there to not, to keep us from feeling pain. If we're lucky, we will develop what's called self-soothing strategies, which are 
Unlike firefighters, which numb the pain, self-soothing are activities that allow us to safely connect with the buried pain. For example, yoga. Lying in the sun and feeling lonely or feeling the wounds of lost relationships. Creating just enough of a safe container of sensations that we can be with and begin to connect with that wounded child that is essentially connects to us through physiological deep contractions in the belly, in the chest, and in the throat, in the face. You'll know when you are beginning to connect with that wounded child, it will not come up to you with a sentence or with words or with ideas. The wounded child stems from an age well before we had language, well before we had the ability to communicate in words. It was formed in those years, the first two years of life, where we desperately, desperately just wanted to be seen constantly, reliably, but at times there was a pulling away, a disconnection, and that child has got waves of contraction and tightness and a proclivity to, to go into this um, shell or this locking. It's that, it's that freeze state. It's that hypervigilance when we're in a situation where we don't know people and we suddenly are in a body that's looking everywhere for threats, even though logically we know that there are no threats present. It's essential that we do not criticize, judge, or suppress any part of ourselves. No matter how tired or frustrated you are about a part of yourself, trying to repress it or judge it away or shame it away or logic it away will not work because all of these parts to survive started and have been out young in life. They have been deeply wired over decades. And after all, they saved our ass at one point or another. The child that learned to lie to survive the shaming encounter with a parent figure that was drunk is not going to just stop lying as an adult simply because we shame ourselves. It only stops lying when it is shown carefully and kindly that now there are other ways to speak our truth without being harmed or abandoned. As Schwartz, the founder of IFS, and Roberto Asiogli, I don't have any idea how to pronounce his name, so I just made it sound Italian, um, notes that so many of our parts begin in traumatic events, and therefore they have a kind of inherent feeling that it's life or death, that they remain in place. It might sound odd, but for the child of an alcoholic, such as myself, the desire to maintain acute hypervigilant awareness of men's facial expressions for years became a life or death strategy. Because if I didn't know what emotional state at each given moment a man who I was hanging out with was in, at any moment I felt I could be 
have a plate thrown at my head because that's literally what dinners were like in my family. In fact, I developed what's called antisocial behavior throughout much of my childhood because for me it was more painful not knowing when my father was going to explode than to actually provoke the explosion because at least then I knew what form it would take. So my dad who grew up in the shadows of the depression and was frugal and hated anyone who enjoyed spending money or you know, using up things. So I would stand, sit before him and squeeze platefuls of ketchup, looking at him with this look of what form is the monster going to take today? And I brought those tendencies into kindergarten and into first grade. I was in therapy, I'm not kidding, from second grade on. Yes, what you're seeing here is actually the result of decades of therapy. So you, you can't even imagine what it would have been like if I hadn't gotten early help. So, so many of my strategies, which in, to, to, well into adult life, when I was in teacher training with different teachers, I sat there in a room trying to figure out everything they got wrong and the one question that would try to get Noah angry or to piss off Vinny just so that, because I wanted to know, are these people safe? And I tested them for year in and year out. It took so many years of work to get to a place where I could turn towards these parts of myself that had taken on the burden of survival and getting secure and safe and ask them gently, thank you so much for all you've done, but now I need you to take a step back so that other parts of me can stand and also be known. The parts that are vulnerable, the parts around men where I can be not antisocial or aloof, but can just relax and express my vulnerable feelings. The parts of myself where I can do what I'm doing now, where I don't have to sound good or like some expert, where I can present to you all or a lot of my foibles. I don't pretend that you've even heard the half of them, but uh, <coughs> my book, which is coming out. I'm not telling you that because I want you to buy it. Please don't. Uh, I'm just telling you because uh, there's a whole chapter where it's just a confession to break through this myth that teachers are, these somehow arrive at some special plane where we talk in these neutered, completely safe voices where we are where we sound completely pleasant all the time. And all I did was write one chapter confessing everything, including like my still proclivities when I'm feeling frustrated or sad to go to the secondhand clothing stores and buy a hoodie that I really don't need because as Kathy will tell you, I have more hoodies than any human being needs or should have. I also have too many glasses. So yes, that's another firefighter in me. 
Sometimes when the shit hits the fan, I'm feeling, what's the point? I'm feeling beaten down for reasons that are often entirely imaginary. I've been triggered for some reason or just haven't, something happens. And I have, rather than feeling the loneliness, the frustration of childhood as it starts to return, when I start to feel that inner child that carries the wounds, I can find myself propelled to Beacon's Closet, this is not an advertisement for it, it's just a specific location where I rifle through the uh, racks and racks of clothes and find something that a Buddhist teacher can afford, which is generally pretty fucking cheap. But I walk out and it gives the half hour of, of dopamine boost. And I'm not saying that I'm aiming for a life where there's absolutely no firefighters, where at times I will never have that tanha, that kamatana, that craving for sensual pleasure. This is not about becoming ajans. This is about developing a balance in life so that at times, rather than being forced into our addictive strategies to numb the pain at all costs, we can also turn towards using our, our self-soothing strategies, whether it's getting, uh, uh, so for some it's just lying in savasana. Sometimes it can be uh, taking a bike ride, going to a place that's safe, surrounded by nature, finding soothing sensations, and just feeling that inner child that has been carrying so much pain and has been abandoned so many times, and all it really wants is to express its sadness, its fear, its loneliness, not just to ourselves, but to other people. That's all it wants. It doesn't want anything else. It just wants to be seen and expressed to safe people. And when we do that, we heal remarkably. And when we do that, the parts that have taken on the burden of our survival, like perfectionism, workaholism, addiction, self-reliance, those parts don't just magically go away, but they have a tendency to become right-sized. They recede a little bit so that other healthy strategies can come to the fore. So today's meditation is going to be connecting first with a manager in ourselves. And we're going to visualize that manager and we're going to kindly thank it for all of its service. And then we're going to ask it to step aside so that we can connect with a firefighter. And then we're going to connect with a firefighter, something that we've relied on to numb our emotional pain, our sadness, our loneliness. And we're going to ask that firefighter to gently step aside. And then we're going to see if we can connect with that scared, wounded child that lies at the very bottom, compartmentalized, shielded, cordoned off, hidden part of ourselves and connect with that, and nurture that, and reassure it that we are on a journey not only to reconnect with it, but to express its wounds so that we don't have to conceal it for the rest of our lives. 
So probably none of that made sense, but we'll do it anyway. We'll see if you find it to be worthwhile or not. So find a really, really comfortable seated position. And of course, in any heart or uh, practice where we are working with any kind of vulnerable, authentic material, really prioritize not just uprightness and posture, but comfort. Really, the posture is a balance. And the best way to achieve that is not by forcing or contorting, but just finding a place where your body is balanced. Balance will do all the work. You don't need to use effort to do the work. So see if you can tilt your head in such a way that it nicely aligns with the shoulders, and the shoulders in line with the hips, and just let that be the effort in posture. And let your hands and arms drop. So we'll take our three breaths just to begin. Uh, full deep in-breath and while you breathe in, pull your shoulders up and then hold them up and then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop them like they weigh each a ton and just let them hang there. Just relax all the way down from the shoulders to the palms of the hands and just release. And then a second deep in-breath. And as you do so, contract the abdominal muscles which hold so much of our fear and our tendency to avoid and withdraw. And just hold it in. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. Release any tendency as much as possible to contract to tighten there. And then for the third in-breath, tightening the muscles of the face, squinching the eyes, squinching the mouth, around the nose, locking the jaw, getting this tight, and then breathe out. Release the jaw, soften around the eyes, soften the forehead. And then take a survey of the body, and if there's any area that you would right now like to adjust, clothing that's too tight, legs that are awkwardly folded, I want you to develop in these early practices a tendency to be very, very compassionate, self-caring. If we start out with that as our disposition, then we can continue with that disposition of kindness, caring, acceptance into our practice. So closing the eyes, so in the examples I'll use, I'm going to try to keep it on experiences we might have had here at Garrison on retreat, but if nothing comes to mind from this retreat, it's okay to bring to mind experiences from your day-to-day life. In general, I like to keep practices grounded in the retreat itself, but 
for this one practice, it's totally okay to summon up experiences from your life outside of garrison. So bring to mind that social mask as Heather was referring to it, that tendency when you're in a group of people, you walk into a room, people are turning towards you, that first moment when you were here on entering this hall and you didn't know anyone, and that felt tendency to want to look good, to smile even though we might not feel like smiling, to, to monitor other people to see if they're accepting us. That felt inclination to be pleasant even though we might feel angry or we might feel overwhelmed. that tendency to look good to other people, can you find it somewhere? Can you bring to mind an image of what we'll call your manager? The part of you that over the years of life has learned to present in a way that other people are most likely to approve. Can you bring to mind just just let an image come to mind. The people pleaser, the worrier, the professional organizer that makes everything run on schedule, that puts out every uh, blaze at work, that lives under the hope that one day all of our efforts will be seen and finally get the recognition that we deserve. Can you see that part of you? Just hold it as an image. It can be your face, it could be a representation of that strong inclination to be approved of. The people pleaser. And I just want you, if you can, visualize something to thank it for all of its years of running around and busily meeting everyone's needs but your own. A part of you that is so constantly striving to be good enough all that effort. And even though this part of you doesn't know when to let go and when to stop and sometimes it will follow you from work to home and it will live in all of the things it needs to get done and it'll wake you up in the middle of the night with to-do lists because it can never ever let go. I want you to thank it. Thank you. Thank you for all you've done 
Thank you for all the times when I was overwhelmed by life alone, where you rallied, where you helped lead me through difficult social situations and times of complete confusion and doubt, when I could have simply crumbled into a shell. Instead, there you were to lift me up and help me survive simply by doing what we were told to do, to work, to keep our chin up, to present in a way that looked good. Thank you. But now I need you to take some time off. We're now on retreat, and there's no one to perform for. There's no one I need to impress, and there's no one who's keeping score. And there's no one that I need to act for to get love. And so you can visualize a place in this hall where you ask that part of yourself just to sit and listen, but you no longer, for these next four days, need this part to help you survive. And just visualize this part, maybe grumpily, maybe objecting, but, 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 I can't let go. Just walk it to a place, ask it to sit. And now a second part. This is a part that you don't like other people to see. It's a part of you that comes out alone when you close the door and when nobody is looking and when suddenly feeling lonely or angry and discomforted by our anger or sadness, this compulsive drive to make ourselves feel better as quickly as possible, no matter what. For some of us, it lies in compulsive social media or dating apps or sex or drugs or alcohol or food or shopping. None of us particularly are proud of these parts, but we owe this part of ourselves as much gratitude as we owe the manager that looks good. Because this part, after all, doesn't want us to feel pain either. It just wants to be there and help us not re-experience loneliness and abandonment. So can you visualize her or him or whatever shape or form or gender it appears or non-gender and just visualize that part. That desperate, just wanting to not be wounded again part. And just ask it, out of gratitude for all it's done for us to take a seat.
Maybe the two parts will sit together somewhere in this hall. Or maybe they'll sit at opposite ends because they don't like each other very much. For some people, the different parts of themselves are ashamed and poorly integrated. From others, they work as a team and don't believe in any way, shape, or form where we have the ability to feel those old wounds. Now finally, I'd like you to visualize a time either on this retreat, preferably or not, where you felt most alone, isolated, not connected, unsafe. A time where recently we felt that rawness of disconnection, loneliness. And this part will be felt as a stirring in the abdomen or a lump in the throat. And when you start to feel this, there'll be tendencies of your mind to jump in and stop it, stop the process, but just be persistent. Finding that wounded child that has been buried by so many years of abandonment and shunning concealed by so many strategies to survive. That part of ourselves that carries all of the breakups, all of the times our friends didn't return calls, didn't understand our needs, all of the times we were left feeling unique and unlovable, held in this concealed part of ourselves that speaks to us through the body. And just turn to it and say, I love you. I care about you. I'll take care of you.
turning to face our manager while the child is present, can we find that part of ourselves that always needs to look good and ask it knowing how frightened we are of feeling this pain? Can we begin to let go a little bit? Are there ways we can, or times that we can begin to connect with this abandoned part of ourselves? Asking permission of the manager to do this work. Asking permission of the firefighter, the part of us that secretly consumes. Will you let me have time with this child, this abandoned, wounded part of myself? We're safe here. Can we have some of this time to heal, to bring this child out into light? So before we bring this meditation to a close, I'd like you to see if you can connect with some old, joyful, authentic, spontaneous, free impulse associated with that child that you've abandoned because that impulse over the years has received so much rejection. It could be a desire simply to do cartwheels or somersaults in the lawn. It could be a desire to twirl around or sing or whatever you want. And although your managers and firefighters will absolutely hate this, I want you to make a pact that you'll find a safe space at some time in the next few days to give voice, even if it means finding a quiet place to sing or dance or move freely, just to reconnect with that part through the body. The goal is not to get rid of any part of ourselves, but to develop a mind that at at times can simply ask some parts that have been overburdened and have been taking too much control of our lives, the manager, the caretaker, the people pleaser, the perfectionist, just ask it to step aside and feel the parts that have been shunted into the background and to connect with those. This retreat is an opportunity to reintegrate with those parts. This is an invitation to you 
So letting go of any remaining images from this practice. And very slowly opening your eyes just enough to take in the floor in front of you with the colors and lights. And see if you can integrate sight with any feelings that remain, if any feelings were connected with in this practice. Maybe there were, maybe there weren't. Maybe this will take a while. But whatever you're feeling, see if you can bring this into the rest of the seceding practices that we'll move into. Don't allow sight to push into the background that child. 